As Pastor Doug made you privy to earlier, I grew up on a small farm in rural Texas. I grew up in such a small town, one of the smallest towns in the whole state. And so you can imagine my surprise when I heard that the circus was coming to town. We bought our tickets and my parents drove us up to what we knew as our rodeo grounds. Uh, but instead of horses and steers, I looked and saw ginormous elephants, the largest land mammals in the world. And I saw these elephants, and as a young country boy, my eyes just lit up. Uh, it, was, it was a great evening. We had a lot of fun, but my mind kept going back to these elephants. I don't know a ton about elephants, but what I do know about elephants is they exist in Asia and the continents of Africa and the jungles and the plains and the forests. Yet here they were being utilized as carriers of little children around our rodeo ground. As I kept thinking about that, I thought, you know, elephants need a lot of land to thrive. They need an environment that allows them to live out the life that elephants are supposed to live. Thousands of square miles, not a little town in Texas. Then I thought to myself, you know, as Christians, we have an environment where we thrive too. We have an environment that God has created for us, and it's called the church. And it's in the church that we get to live out the calling that God has given us as brothers and sisters in Christ. So it's important that we don't live our lives like these circus elephants in the wrong environment, in a place that doesn't allow you and afford you the opportunity to thrive and live out the call that God has in your life. And Paul's giving this similar talk to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter four. And if you're not there already, go ahead and turn there in your Bible to Ephesians four. We'll be looking at verses one through three. But as Christians, we need to actively participate in our calling as believers, as brothers and sisters. And this requires the right environment, but not only the right environment, but you have a job to do in that environment. You see, elephants actually do a lot in their environment to allow this environment to raise other animals. For instance, elephants eat foliage and they eat limbs and trees and forests to allow undergrowth to grow, to allow the smaller mammals and the smaller animals to thrive. And so in the right environment, these elephants allow the rest of the animal kingdom to thrive. And just like that, God has given us a perfect environment as Christians, the church. But each of us, we have a job to do in the church to make sure that the church body thrives and does what God has called us to do. Follow with me. In verse one it says, therefore. We can pause right there. That was quick, wasn't it? Therefore. Therefore is important for us in the Bible because we know whatever is about to be said is predicated on what has been said before this. And so we need to, as Christians right now, when we read the word therefore, we need to resolve to say, it doesn't matter what's about to be said, I'm going to do it. Because of what was said before, because of what God has said before, I'm going to resolve to no matter what it is, whatever the therefore is, I'm going to commit to doing it. That's what we're supposed to do as a Christian. But what gives us that resolve to do what we need to, the therefore, we have to understand what's before that. Ephesians chapters one through three give us 
theology, something we call doctrine. And it explains to us all the reasons that the therefore exists in Ephesians 4. A little reference list, I won't make you go through and read all of chapters 1 through 3, which if you haven't, I hope you will this week. But when Paul says, therefore, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, he's not asking you to come up with this ambiguous, vague calling. He's actually already told you what that calling is. And he says it in chapters 1 through 3. You've been called to adoption as sons. You've been called to redemption in Christ. You have been called to an eternal inheritance. Actually, you've been sealed with God's Holy Spirit, which is the promise of that inheritance, which is the guarantee of your inheritance in Christ. Paul's saying that the calling is that you've been called to the hope of the gospel. Actually, you were dead. At one time, you were completely dead and separated from God, but he made you alive with Christ. You've been seated with Christ, and you have been saved by grace through faith of, of no work of your own. And so God said you've been called to being gifted salvation from God, a work completely not of your own. You've been created, Ephesians 2.10, in Christ for good works that have prepared for you in advance that you should walk in them. That you were completely alienated from God, but you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That you now have access to God through Christ. That at one time you were completely separated. You could not get to God even if you tried your hardest. But now you have been brought near and reconciled to God together in one body, this body, one body, through Christ. Because of that, you've been, you've been given access to God, and now we are being built together as a holy dwelling place for God. You see, that's our calling, that we are being built together, you and I and our church and the global church, being built together for a dwelling place for God. And why? Why is this the case? Well, Ephesians 3 ends up saying, for the glory of God in the church and in Christ and for all generations forever and ever. So this is the call that you've been given in chapters one through three. This isn't a call that you have to go try to create in your mind. This isn't a call that you have to figure out. We don't have to go home and say, God, what is your call in my life? We have it. It's in Ephesians one through three. This is a calling of God for our lives to be redeemed and built into a holy dwelling place, pleasing to God for the glory of God in Christ for all generations forever and ever. That's our calling. That calling is a Greek word, klesis. And out of all the times it's ever used in the New Testament, every single time it is used in the New Testament, it refers to a calling issued by God. That word is klesis, issued by God. Again, this isn't your calling as a professional, a, a business person, not your calling that, to a spouse or your calling to have children or, or any of these earthly callings. Every klesis, every calling of this word is an issued by God. And so here, I therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Something significant here in chapters one through three is Paul explains core doctrines of the Christian faith before he ever explains to the Ephesians how they ought to live. Did you hear that? That Paul makes sure that he gets the doctrine right. He gets theology right. He gets people to think rightly about God before he ever says, this is now how you need to live out your life. This is oftentimes why Christians have a hard time 
living out their faith because they have no idea what they ought to believe about God. And that's why Paul makes sure he gets doctrine straight. He expounds on soteriology, the doctrine of our salvation, pneumatology, the doctrine of the Spirit, Christology, the theology of Christ and his work and his life and his death, and theology proper, the doctrine of God and what we believe about God the Father. You see, Paul put this front and center because he said, if you don't get this, if you don't understand who God is, if you don't understand what Christ has done, if you don't understand what the Spirit has done in your life, you're never gonna know how to live. And even if you tried, you wouldn't know why you were doing it. And so Paul expounds on that in chapters one through three. And then he says, therefore. Therefore, now you can walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've received because you know why. Because you know why. You know what God has done. You know what salvation has brought you. You know what you are called to. So now you need to walk. You need to live and act and drink and eat and live and die. And all of these things you do in a manner worthy of the calling that you have in Christ. Now, I'm not saying you have to know every doctrine of the Bible. I'm not saying you have to know every aspect about theology to start following God. I don't think anyone would tell you you have to. But you have to start somewhere. You have to have a starting place of where your knowledge of God has started so that you can begin living for Christ. That's why it says here in Ephesians that you were dead. When you were dead, you have no understanding of God. But when he has made you alive, you now have the ability and the opportunity to know God. And so we have to start somewhere so that therefore we can live out our calling. And that's point number one, if you're taking notes, is that you need to live out your calling in the church. You need to live out your calling in the church. You may ask, why did you add the church? Why not just live out your calling? Well, I've stated it before, but Khaleesi that calling that you have been called by God isn't your own calling, isn't the specific singular calling that God has just called you individually to, but it's the calling that God has called the church. And as a matter of fact, the whole letter to the Ephesians is written in context of the local church. So there's nothing that Paul is saying in the whole letter of Ephesians that you can just point at yourself and say, this is me, 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 me. No, this is we, 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 we. Right? Other than the fact that you were given salvation individually, you're not gonna, you, your kids can't inherit your salvation. But once you have salvation, once you have been adopted as a son, once you've been redeemed in Christ, now it's we. We need to understand that anything that you do not do that is inextricably wrapped in the context of the local church is not God's will for your life. You hear that? Anything that you do that is not inextricably wrapped in the context of the local church is not God's will for your life. What do I mean? What do I mean by that? Because of course you have a job, you have a home, you have kids, you have an education. What I mean is this, that if you have a job and your entire purpose for your job is so you can make money and live the high life and be comfortable in your home living in South Orange County, then I would say that you're not living the calling that God has in your life. If that job wasn't in your life purposed so that you can be generous to God, be generous to his church, you know, give you an opportunity to, to raise your children right, to make sure there was food on your table so that your kids can be fit, well fed and plugged into the local church and taught God's word. You see, your job should be an opportunity, a stewardship given to you by God to build up the local church. 
not so that we can use it for our own selfishness. And whether it's education, are you raising your children? What are you raising your children for? Is it, as a parent, are you raising your children for your own pride, for your own joy? When your children succeed, look what I did. Look what, look what I raised my child to do. Or are you understanding the kalesis and the calling that God has for you to steward your children? Here at Compass, we say children are arrows, and we shoot them out to do God's will. Are we raising our children in the admonition of the Lord? Are we raising our children according to the calling that we have to teach them how to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ. If you want to know how important living out your calling in the local church is, you don't have to look any further than Matthew 16. Matthew 16, 15 through 18, if you want to jot that down. Matthew 16, 15 through 18, Jesus says to his disciples, but who do you say that I am? And then Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There are so many people in church history, so many people in our culture today who look at this and come to the wrong conclusion, come to the conclusion that this text speaks about Peter being the Pope and how God is going to use Peter as the cornerstone to build the church in the world. And if you believe that, and if anyone believes that, you, get, you don't even get the context or the meaning of this passage. The genius of this passage is the fact that Peter replied that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The genius of this text is that it was Peter who said, aha, this is the meaning of this. The meaning of this is that you are Christ, the son of the living God, and you are the foundation of the local church. You are the foundation of the global church. And on that rock, on that foundation, on the foundation of Jesus being the Christ, the son of the living God, it is on that foundation that Christ will what? That Christ will give you the career that you've always wanted. That Christ will make sure that you have two and a half kids and a dog named Spot. No, no, it's on that rock, on that foundation, that I will build my church. It's on that foundation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that Christ is going to build his church. And so we're going to live out our calices, our calling, which God has called us to, that we got to understand that Christ's plan is that he builds his church, and our call is that we be the church that God is building so what's your mission? If Christ's plan is to build the church, then what's your part in it? You can flip over to Philippians 1.27 or write this down. Philippians 1.27. And Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. If you want to know your mission and your calling in the church, it's threefold. And the first is that you need to be standing firm. This is why doctrine is important, because you need to know why you are a part of the local church. If you're just part of a local church because you have friends and there's people there who like you, then you're not going to stand firm when, when life gets hard. You're not going to stand firm when things get tough, when culture pushes back against the church, when it's raining outside and it's 50 degrees. But when you understand doctrine, you understand the call of the local church, 
then you're going to be willing to stand firm, putting your feet to the foundation that is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Secondly, that it is that we're striving, that each of us have our feet sturdy, that we are standing on a firm foundation, and then we are striving. See that Greek word striving, it means a competitive struggle. If you're an athlete, if you ever watch sports, and you know what it means to struggle, to have an athletic struggle, to be working for a purpose, to be working to win, and it's not going to be easy. But when we are standing firm and we are striving, and thirdly, side by side. See, our calling, Kalesis, God's calling for us in the local church is that we're standing firm, is that we're working, we're working hard, we're striving, and we're doing it with locked arms, side by side. You see, this is purposeful. It's the mission of the church to stand firm in the midst of a culture that's so divided, to stand firm in the midst of a culture that wants to tell us that what we're doing should be private, not public. You see, we gotta stand firm as God's church and striving and working. Working for what? For the faith of the gospel, both in the church that we know why we're called, that we know why we are here, that we understand who God is and what his word says, and that we live that way outside, that we strive together side by side for the faith of the gospel, that we're able to go out into our communities together, unified as a body of believers, not divided, and share the gospel to a community that's divided, to a country that's divided. See, that's our call. And anything less is not glorifying to God or the purpose to which we exist as a church. And so our call is unity in the church for the faith of the gospel, standing firm, striving together, side by side. And how can you do that? How, do you, how can you start this? If, if you're not doing it, how can you begin doing it? If you haven't been doing it well, how can you get better at it? Or if you have been doing it, how can I remind you to continue? Well, first is be present with the church. 939, you guys made it, good job. You're here. Be present with the church. You can't be the church and you can't stand firm and strive together and do this side by side if you're not here. And that's why we believe it's so important that we not only preach God's word, but we do it here together. That we do it while everyone can see one another and then we can learn together as a church what God's word teaches us. But you have to be present. That's why although video is amazing and although live streaming is wonderful, that it's never going to take the place of the body, the gathered body of Christ. Secondly, you need to live out your faith in community. I hope that's not new to you, that you have to not only be at church on the weekend, but you need to live out your faith in community. Right. For those who just show up on a weekend and call it church and check that box and they say, I did it, I'm a part of the local church. You miss the whole meaning of a letter to the Ephesians when we are called to be one body. We have one faith, one Lord, one baptism. We are one. We are a body. No more than your pinky is going to take off on Monday and not come see you again until Sunday. Like You as a believer ought not to you know, come on Sunday and never see the rest of the body for the rest of the week. It doesn't make sense. And so at Compass, we, we say it like this, that right now you have your seats facing towards the stage, but there needs to become a time during the week that you pick that chair up and you turn it around and you face the body of Christ. And you talk about God's word and you talk about the application questions that we've found here in Ephesians. That when a catastrophe happens in your life, your community and your small group is the first person you call. 
When there's a celebration in your life, your small group is the first people you call. Why? Because you're the body and you live life together. And thirdly, and if you haven't been doing this, this is necessary to fulfill the calling that God has in your life as a church, and that's that you are serving. That you are serving. How important serving is that Paul says in Ephesians 12 that, you know, he, that God has called the pastors, the teachers, the preachers, the shepherds to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. See, that's our whole reason for existing as a church is to serve, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So it's everyone's job here to do the work of ministry. Could you imagine if a body didn't do everything that it has existed to do? Well, we know what that's like. That's why we have hospitals, right? That's, that's why we have medical facilities because when the body isn't properly working, you have to go get it taken care of. And so if you're here and you aren't partaking in the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ, we have to get that taken care of. And so if that's you this weekend, you need to make sure that not only you're here, not only are you in a small group or in community that you are serving, that you are being equipped to do the work of ministry because that is the calesis, the calling that we have been called to. And that's how we live a manner worthy of that call. Here at Compass, we just say it like this. You need to make sure that you attend, connect, and serve. Not to oversimplify, not that you can just check those boxes and, and, and be working in the body of Christ, but you can't be a part of the body of Christ if you're not at least doing that, if you're not at least attending every moment that you can, attending when these doors are open, attending every time you're in town and you're not on vacation, not just when it's cold, or, but to attend, connect, and serve. And that's how we initiate the obedience to the calling that God has given us. But we can't just be here, just attending, connecting, and serving without any uh, direction would be detrimental not only to you and me, but to the whole church. That's why Paul, in verse two, in the beginning of verse two, starts giving virtues needed to live in the church. Aren't we glad that Paul explains how we do that? In verse 2a, he says, with all humility, gentleness, with patience. Humility, gentleness, and patience. That's how we live out this call. You see, in the first century, humility and gentleness and patience, these aren't virtues that, that people love to live out. These weren't virtues that society in the first century said, you know what, that's right, Those, that's, that's how we need to live our lives. Similar to right now, these aren't the virtues that we see lived out. These aren't the virtues that we see leaders of our country living out. These aren't virtues that we see celebrities and athletes and people that the society esteems highly. We don't see them living humble, gentle and patient lives, do we? That's all the more reason why as a church living the calling that God has given us that we must live in a way that is humble, that is gentle, and that is patient. If you've been around here for at least a few months, you know we've already talked about these because they're called the fruits of the Spirit. You find those in Galatians 5, through 26. You can write that down, Galatians 5, through 26. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, there's the third one that Paul pointed out, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, there's the second one, self-control, against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit, underline that, we want to get back to that in just a second, let us keep also in step with the Spirit, verse 26, let us not become conceited, there's the first one, conceited. What's the opposite of conceited? 
humble. So let us become humble so that we don't provoke one another and envy one another. You see, as Christians, in order to live humble, gentle, and patient in life, we have to keep in step with the Spirit. We're gonna get, I told you we're going to get back to that. If you haven't underlined that, you need to keep in step with the Spirit. If you ever expect to live out your calling, the calesis that God has called us as a church, then we're going to have to do that in step with the Spirit because in and of ourselves, you don't have to go too far back in your memory bank to remember a time where you weren't humble and you weren't gentle and you weren't patient. If I ask your spouse or your kids or your coworkers, they can probably give me a couple of, a couple of scenes where you weren't epitomizing humility, gentleness, and patience. But that's all the more reason why if we're gonna live out the calling that God has called us to in the local church in one body doing the work of the ministry, that we're gonna have to make sure that we're doing it humbly and gently with patience. And that's the beautiful part about this is God has not called us to do it alone. In Ephesians, he said, we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. This means God said, listen, you can't do this on your own. You're gonna to have to have the Spirit. And so our call is to keep in step with the Spirit because the Spirit helps us do this. And this point number two is it helps us have more flexibility. And the way I wrote it is that you need to pray for more flexibility. But you need to pray for more flexibility because on your own, you're not gonna be humble and gentle and patient. On your own, you're gonna create division in the church. In your own, you're gonna harm the body of Christ. And that's why we need to make sure that we are prepared to be a part of the local church, that we are prepared to be here on the weekend, that we are prepared to be in our small group so that we ought not to create any division or any harm to the body. Just like I'm gonna stretch and I'm gonna get ready when I work out so I don't harm any of my ligaments, we ought to be sure to prepare before we take part in the church so we won't harm the church. See, I'm not talking about doctrine again. I'm not saying that you need to be flexible in your doctrine. You hear that, right? I'm not saying that you should be flexible in what you believe about the Bible and what you believe about God. As a matter of fact, that's why Paul started with doctrine. He said, this right here, this is non-negotiable, right? What we believe about God is non-negotiable. That doesn't change, right? But how we deal with people, that should change. How the Spirit moves our lives to handle people and relationships should change. Those are things that we need to be flexible with. And we'll, we'll walk through them now. And the first one is when it comes to humility, that you need to have humility in your relationships. Humility in your relationship. This, to me, is one of the funniest aspects of being a Christian, that we have to talk about being humble, that we have to talk about being humble in our relationships because the truth is that at one time in your life, you had to be the most humble being that has ever existed. At one point, if you're a Christian, if you're a part of the calling that is the church, at one point in time, you had to be the most humble being that has ever existed. Why? Because at one point in the time, you were prostrate on the ground, repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ. You were literally before God saying, God, I cannot do this. I am not capable. I'm actually completely incapable of doing any good. And so you had to epitomize humility as a Christian. And so there's not a person sitting in this church who is a Christian who has not become the most humble person at one point in time that has ever existed. But yet over and over and over again in God's word, we are called to humility. But why? If I ask your spouse or your brother or your sister or your coworkers, would they say that you exhibit humility? Or in your own life, I mean, you, you're always willing to say, yeah, I'm wrong. Yeah, I've been wrong before. Yeah, I'm not always right. But in, in the middle of a conflict, you're never the first to admit that you're wrong. 
you're never the first to admit that you didn't make the right choices. Why? Because we don't exhibit humility. It's so important in our life as Christians that we pray for more opportunities to be flexible in our relationships, that we are humble. See, if you have a problem being humble in your relationships, you just need to turn to John 15, 5. And even if you don't, you can write this down, John 15, 5. Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So we need to understand that we had to keep in step with the Spirit, and the keeping in step with the Spirit is going to give us humility in our relationships. And abiding in Christ is going to allow us to do the work that we cannot do on our own. You see, because if our calling is to be in the church, if our calling is to stand firm and strive together and do it side by side, if our calling is to keep in step with the Spirit, we can only do it if we're abiding in Christ. And so you're only going to truly live out your relationships in humility if you're keeping in step with the Spirit and abiding in Christ. And so as I said before, you need to pray for more opportunities to be flexible in your relationship, especially when it comes to humility. And when it comes to gentleness, you need to be more gentle in your communications. This is a Greek word. It just means that you need to be even-killed or even-tempered. Don't we need more of those people in the world? People who are not easily angered, people who are not easily and quick to speak and, and quick to disregard people's feelings and attitudes. We need to be gentle in the way that we speak. In 1 Peter 3.15, we see the need to be gentle in our evangelism. But how can we be gentle in our evangelism if we're not even gentle in the church? If we're so quick to be angered in the church, if we're so quick to cause division in the church, how can we ever fulfill the call to be gentle in our evangelism? How can we ever be gentle in our call to, for outsiders to see us as set apart, as different, as called? It says in 1 Peter 3.15, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, because you're going to have to do that. If you want to live out your faith, you're going to have to honor Christ. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. You see, if we're going to be gentle with outsiders, with people who aren't Christians, then we need to make sure, and that's what Paul wants to get us to do, is to make sure that we're living with gentleness with the insiders, that we're living in gentleness with the people of God. Because it would be the utmost hypocrisy if we were being rigid and ill-tempered towards our brothers and sisters, yet in our evangelism, we are gentle. And so you need to do this. You need to pray for more chances to have gentle conversations, both personally and evangelistically. Sometimes it's hard, it's the most hard to be gentle with the people that you know the most, your spouse, your kids, if you're doing it right, the church. So it's always gonna be difficult but that's why Paul says you have to keep in step with the Spirit. And that's why Jesus says you need to abide in me. Because if you're ever going to fulfill these virtues in the calling that God has given you, you're going to have to do it with the help of God. And lastly, you need to have patience in your actions. If I could give you one person who epitomizes their patience in their actions, I would just have to tell you it's God. Romans 2, you can flip there, Romans 2, 3 through 4. In Romans 2, 3 through 4, Paul says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself? He's talking about these, these, these Romans, these Christians who are being hypocritical, that they are judging people for the same things that they themselves are doing. So he's calling out hypocrisy, and in this hypocrisy, he's saying this, 
Do you think that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume, or you just assume, on the riches of his kindness, of God's kindness, and forbearance, and patience? There's that word, macrothemia. Patience, meaning long-suffering, or to have a long fuse. It's like, do you just presume on the riches and kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? This should be the most compelling verse in the whole Bible of why you ought to live with patience. Because as a matter of fact, God has lived with the utmost patience for you. And if God is willing to be forbearing for you, patient with you, if God is willing to have a long fuse for you, how much more of a long fuse ought you have with brothers and sisters in Christ? How much more forbearing ought you and I to be with our brothers and sisters? Which how it usually works is we know that God's had a super long fuse for us, but really our fuses could never be shorter. In 2020, our fuses could never be shorter, especially in, in the context of our church. The minute someone steps on your toe, the minute someone gives you a jab, you're the first to anger, you're the first to hate and to ill feelings. But that ought not to be so in the church. And that's why we need to look to God, who is the perfect example that his kindness and forbearance and patience was meant to lead you to repentance. That our God has given us the utmost patience in hopes that we would come to him and repent and turn of our sins and trust in him. So how much more as Christians ought we to be patient in hopes that we will maintain unity, in hopes that our church will come together and be better for it because you didn't explode, because you didn't create division, because you didn't divide a small group, because you didn't divide the church, but because God has a long fuse for you, you're willing to have a long fuse with others. You see, we are quick to get mad at other people. The person we should often get mad at is ourselves. There is no one in your life that has committed more sin against you than yourself. And so if there's anyone in the world that we should have a short fuse with, it's ourself. And it ought to give us the utmost opportunity to be forbearing with others, knowing that we are our own biggest problem. If you want to know what you need to do when it comes to being patient in your actions, it's simple. You need to pray for more godly patience with others. We could all use it, and we need to pray for it. Because if we're gonna keep in step with the Spirit, if we're gonna abide in Christ, if we're gonna be patient in our actions, we need to pray to God that he would help us. The psalmist puts it this way in Psalm 119, 29 through 30. It says, put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I have set your rules before me. The psalmist is saying, there is a way that is false, there is a way that is full of my desires and my deceitfulness and my sin. And he says, ah, and there's a way that is good. There's a way that is righteous. And that's the way, God, that you have called me. And God, that's why I'm gonna put away my desires. I'm gonna put away my deceitfulness and I'm gonna follow the way of faithfulness. In our own lives, we have that opportunity in the church. Am I gonna follow the way of sin and create disunity and create conflict in the church? And am I gonna you know, be prideful and I'm gonna be rigid and I'm gonna be impatient with others? Or am I gonna take the road of righteousness? Am I gonna take the path that says I need to be patient and humble and gentle? 
be like the psalmist and make sure that you've chosen the way of faithfulness and that we set the rules of God, that we set the doctrine of God, that we set exactly what Paul did in the first three chapters, that we set those things before us so we know how we ought to walk. If you want to sum that up, you can do that in Philippians 2, 3 through 4. If you want to choose the way of faithfulness, if you want to put falsehood far from you, you're going to do what Paul says in Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. When you want to be the most humble, the most patient individual that's ever existed, you're going to do that by counting yourself as less significant, counting others as more significant than yourself. When you get in conflict, even if that person is wrong, this is the Bible says, you would rather be wrong than create division. To count others as more significant than yourself isn't meaning that, oh, I'm right and you're wrong. It's saying you're more significant than I am. Let me be humble. Let me be gentle. And that's what the Philippians is talking about. If it, as it continues going into verse two, it's the epitome of humility. It's Jesus Christ who, although he's equal with God, did not count his equality as something to be grasped. He said, I'm not even going to try to grasp my equality with God because that's not who I'm, that's what I'm here for. That's not my goal. That's not my ambition. My goal is to be a servant and to give my life as a ransom for many. That's Christ's call, the, the, the being that could grasp equality with God, the, the being that is equal with God, the only being that could ever counter this argument was saying, well, but except for me. And Jesus could say, well, except for me, all of you, but except for me because I am God. I'm equal with God. But that's not what he said. He said, I'm gonna humble myself. I'm gonna be a servant. I'm going to become humble even to death on a cross because I know that I have a calling and that's to be a ransom for many, to bring many into the kingdom of God and to create one body, to create one church, to build a dwelling place for God. You see, we have a mission we have a job, and we need to live it out. And you're gonna do that by being flexible. Flexible in your relationships with humility, flexible by being gentle in the way that you communicate, and flexible by being patient in your actions. And then finally, in the rest of verse two and in verse three, Paul explains exactly what these virtues help accomplish. You see, because we know what our calling is now because we've read Ephesians one through three, we understand because we need humility and gentleness and patience that we need to be flexible. Now Paul's saying, and here's why you need to be flexible. You know why you're called. You know what your call is. You know you need to be flexible, and here's why. Because you need to be able to bear with one another in love. And you need to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. To bear, to be patient, to put up with, to deal with. Don't, aren't you glad there are people in the world that will deal with you? Don't you... Love the fact that you have a spouse who will deal with you. And we need to do that in love. In verse three, that we are eager. The Greek word, spadazo. That just means to do your best. That you want to do your best to maintain the unity of the spirit. That we want to do everything that we can in our abilities. I remember when I was a kid and I would play football. And uh, the night before a game, I couldn't, I couldn't sleep. Because I was just so excited to get up and just do my best 
eyes wide open at three o'clock in the morning. I just got ready. I want to do my best. I want to go out there and I want to give it all I got and I want to do my best. And what if it was, what if that was how your life was like right before you came to church the next day that you were up all night saying, I'm going to do my best. I'm going to do everything I can because I'm eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. Like you aren't, you don't walk in here begrudgingly or angrily because somebody upset you, but you, just, you get in here and you're like, I'm so excited. You better not say nothing to divide my church because I'm gonna be so eager to keep the unity. Shouldn't that be your attitude? Like, I am so eager, don't even come at me with that division because I'm gonna be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. And that's why we have to bear with one another. But there are gonna be a lot of times where somebody says something to you that you don't like. Somebody probably said something to you that probably should never be said to anybody. But what are you gonna do? You're gonna do what Christ did. You're gonna bear. You're gonna, you're gonna deal with it. You're gonna take it because you know there's a calling that is bigger than you getting in conflict with somebody else. You have a calling that is more significant than any kind of conflict that you might be dealing with with another person. You have a calling. And that calling should allow you to bear with people and be eager to maintain unity. And that's exactly why you do it, because you've been called and if we've been called, then we know that we have a purpose and we exist for a reason. And then we can understand this, that God is most, most glorified when the church is unified. Did you get that? That God is most glorified when the church is unified. That's what we need right now in 2020, isn't it? Never seen our country, at least in our lifetime, more divided than it is right now. But how about when society looks at the church and they say, you know, I've never seen a more unified body in my life. I have never seen a more unified group of people called to one call called and living out the mission and the purpose that they have been giving. We need a little bit more of that in our country. We need a little bit more of that in our families, in our schools, in our government. But if we don't do it here, who will? We have to live in unity with one another. And that means this, as point number three, is you need to do the work to maintain unity. You see, if we're gonna practice what we preach, the title of the sermon, that what we preach is Ephesians 1 through 3, it's doctrine, it's the Bible. If we're gonna practice it, that's living it out. So we need to practice this unity that we've been preaching about in the Bible. That we need to, to practice living in a life worthy of the manner to which we've been called. Because we're gonna preach it to others, we need to live it in our own church. We need to practice it in our own church. When I think of unity, one of the scriptures that come to my mind is Colossians 3.13. Colossians 3.13 says that we need to bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Not that you also should forgive, but that you must give. Not, you know, it'd be good if you forgave, but you don't really have to know that you must forgive. Right, which is the epitome of Christianity is that we have been forgiven. Like, that's why it is, just, it's, it is just a work of Satan. It's a work of evil that division would ever come into the church because we were divided from Christ and he brought us together in unity with him, with one another, and that division should ever become a part of our church because God has forgiven you of your sins. So far be it from you or me or anyone else to not forgive who have been forgiven much. And so for you and me to work to maintain unity, we're gonna to have to bear with people, we're gonna to have to be eager to maintain unity, and we're gonna to have to forgive other people. Because when it comes down to it, we've been forgiven. When it comes down to it, that in our own lives, that we know that we are the most wrong person in our life, that we are the most sinful person that we know, but we forgive ourselves. 
It's time as a church that we are unified and we have to do that by forgiving one another. In Philippians 2.2, we kind of talked a little bit about it earlier. In Philippians, Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. This sounds a lot like standing firm and striving side by side together for the faith of the gospel that we read just right into Philippians 1.27. And then we're just a couple of verses up. That this is how you complete Paul's joy. This is how we are fulfilling our call, our kalesis in God is by being of the same mind, being so unified that we know exactly what we're thinking, that we know exactly what our mission is and what our call is. And then there's no one sitting around the circle wondering, why is that person giving me that look? Why is that person, why'd that person give me that snide remark earlier? No. We have one mind. We are all here for a purpose, forgiving one another, bearing much with one another, eager to maintain unity in the bond of peace. Now we live that out, whether we're present in the church, whether we're in a small group, or whether we're serving God's church, that we're doing it in the same mind, having the same love, that love that we've been given by God, not an earthly kind of love, not a Hollywood kind of love, but a love that pours out from God, the forgiveness that God has given us, the compassion, the love that God has for his church. That's the kind of love that we need to have together and being in full accord and of one mind, being unified and understanding our position in God's kingdom, understanding the church's position to glorify God and live lives worthy of the manner that we have been called We lived in the country, and there's a lot of weird things about living in the country. Sometimes we don't have water and electricity for days and days and days. But what we did have is yards, something we don't know about in California. And my grandfather had one of the biggest yards that I ever saw when I was a kid. Uh, he had a very large yard. Didn't have a nice house, didn't have nice cars, but man, we had a big yard. And there ain't nothing better for a little boy than having a big yard. My grandfather would take care of this yard. He would maintain this yard better than anybody I've ever seen in my life. He would mow, in the summertime, he would mow that yard three, four, five times a week. And he would walk acres with water hoses and just hand water the whole ground. And he would, anytime a, a branch fell out of a tree, he'd go cut it up, he'd pick it up. He wouldn't let a weed grow in that yard without plucking it. And I said, why, why do you do that? Why do you, why do you maintain this yard so meticulously? And he says, because the better I maintain this yard, the better environment I'm going to have for my family. The better environment that I'm going to have when my kids and my grandkids and my great-grandkids want to come over and have a barbecue, when they want to come over and hang out with their, with their parents and grandparents. So he's like, I'm going to maintain this yard so that I maintain a good environment for you to live out your life in our family. And I, thought, I think to myself now, looking back at that, how biblical that was that his work, that he was eager to maintain his yard for the sake of his family. And how you and I, as Christians, as believers, ought to be just as eager as my grandfather to maintain an environment here at our church where people wanna be. A, a, an environment where people here can grow. Not an environment like a circus, like an elephant who needs to be put in a, a container and shipped from town to town, never really living out the fullness of a life of a, the largest animal on land. 
but that you and I would create an environment in this church where brothers and sisters in Christ can flourish, where brothers and sisters in Christ can live in unity with one another. See, that's the message of hope that you've been trying to hear on TV all week. And that message of hope has been in the Bible since it's been written, and it's here in our church. That's the reality that we live in in the church, and that's why you are here. You are here because of the unity that Christ has called us to, because we are one body, and we need to live it out. But if we're gonna live it out, we need to understand three things. Your responsibility, your job, and your commitment. Your responsibility is to live out the calling that God has for you, and that's in the local church. That's your responsibility. You are responsible for this that you need to live out the calling that God has for us as a church. Yes, it's corporate, but it's corporate because each of us are doing it. It's corporate because you're not doing it by yourself, but you do have to do it. That you need to understand your commitment to be more flexible. To be more flexible, to say no to yourself, to say yes to God, to say no to your ambitions and say yes to the church. For you to say no to to maybe hanging out an extra weekend with with some people going bowling, if you bowl, who bowls anymore? Or serving in the church. Sometimes we need to say no to the things of the world so we can say yes to the things of God. So we can be united and understand your commitment to being a fulfillment of the God's call in our church. And then last, you need to understand your job. And your job, just like my grandfather's job, was to put forth the effort it takes. And we need to come to grips with the effort it's going to take us to maintain unity in our church. We need to come to grips with the effort it's going to take us to live out the calling that God has for us in this church. And we need to come to grips with it, and we need to be eager to take part in the work that God has called us to at Compass Bible Church. Pray with me. God, we thank you for this church, for this local expression of your body that you have given us, that we have, God, that we have a responsibility, a commitment, and a job to live out your calling, your calesis, that we have to live out the calling which you've called us, that we would, in our church, in our own lives, that we would walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we've been given. God, I do pray for our church that we would be more flexible, not in the way we believe about you. We hope that in that, God, that we are standing firm in what we believe about you, what your word says, but that we'd be more flexible relationally, that we would be more humble in our relationships, God, that we would be more gentle in the way that we talk to people, especially the people of God, and that, God, that we would be patient in our actions, God, that we would live in step with your spirit. God, and at the end of the day, that we would look back at our life and each day that we're here and understand and know that we have done the work to maintain unity that we have not created division, that we have not worked to create any kind of issues in our church, but that we do the work it takes to maintain unity. Because that we know that in all things you are most glorified in a church that is unified. So help us today live this calling out to the best of our ability for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.